Hey, it's your host that downloads a two-hour-long movie just for that sweet five-second soundbite. Irene. Hi. Since it's the holiday season and the two episodes were destined to go up on the 25th of December and the 1st of January, I wanted to give you and I a bit of a time to catch up with all the family gatherings and gift wrap recycling, and instead of talking about one language in depth, I thought we could briefly talk about three. But before that, let's spark a bit of a linguistic debate and ask a question I should have answered long ago. What is language? As such, it is just a bunch of sounds and symbols that we structured into a more or less comprehensive system, slapped a name on it, and now use it for communication. Mm, that's usually how it goes. But under this umbrella of a definition, we can put music, but then sign languages would fall out for the lack of sounds. So it's more complex than that. Because even when we use, say, standard English, we don't just communicate with our speech but also with our facial expression, body language, intonation, tones, stress, sighs, giggles, and occasionally yawns. We both present and read a lot of information beyond of what is said. But the thing is, every word is a product of our invention. And though not necessarily actively, we still decided on the meaning for each of them. Even considering other persons yawning disrespectful is kind of a concept we are taught. So if everything is constructed, what do we mean when we say constructed languages? To be honest, language, as much as I admire it, is a pretty flawed thing and comes nowhere near telepathy. But since mind reading is not that accessible to many, people were always trying to either know several languages, most of the world's population in fact is bilingual, or use one as a universal lingua franca. As we previously found out, French was once regarded as such, and now English holds that title. But both of them are incredibly tough and illogical and a whole mess if you look into it. So how about we just make a separate language that would be a. easy to learn and b. make our communication easier. Or maybe you're working on a piece of fiction and the language is that one detail of realism your world is missing. Or maybe you are trying to figure out how our actual world would be different if the way we express things was different. Well, fear not, because for all those concerns, the answer is artificial language. Also known as planned, or engineered, or invented, or constructed, or conlang for short. Yes, quite a plethora of names to choose from. Conline, or constructed, is the one you would hear most often. It is pretty self-explanatory, but as I mentioned before, everything is constructed, every language is artificial, and almost everything we have was once invented. So planned or engineered is preferred most by the fans of those languages. And the quote-unquote normal languages are called natural, as in, as in naturally occurring over a long period of time. Both of those types can be used successfully for communication and be well-rounded in terms of grammar complexity and vocabulary. The first major difference really lies in the age-old history and culture. Natural languages effortlessly carry with them, and artificial languages just do not. And then the second difference is all about who defines the language. I mean, in both cases it's people, but the process is slightly different. With natural languages, grammar changes can be very subtle and happen over a long period of time. Vocabulary is more flexible and words come and go easily for no specific reason. 
It's like a living, breathing organism that, despite all the effort to structure and tame it, still turns out decades later the way it likes best. So now, when people are arguing over transformations within languages and which word should stay and which one should go, they're not exactly the ones in control. Because even when you can see and understand what happened behind the scenes, you can't always follow the logic, let alone know the reason. Not to mention that sometimes centuries pass and only then we are like, What? Where? Why? How? When? Artificial languages, however, are usually all in the hands of their creators, or, if those passed away, in the hands of a small trusted group of people. Even when those languages are more or less broadly used, like Esperanto, for example, they still tend to be preserved the way they were once designed. Of course, vocabulary can be added, but the words need to be created and approved first for that to happen. As I said before, there are several reasons why conlines get invented, thus several types of them. First type is auxiliary languages. Their goal is to make international communication simpler, better, more clear, and make the process of learning those languages fast and easy. For example, Inter-Slavic was invented to try to cross the bridge between all Slavic languages, or Lingua de Planeta was based on the most widely spoken languages, from Arabic to Chinese to English to Russian to Hindi. Then there are artistic languages. They can be a great addition to a fantasy world. Like with Star Trek's Klingon and Games of Thrones' Valyrian, they add layers to the story, help to expand fictional worlds, and just make it more fun. Finally, there are engineered or logic languages that are designed for philosophic or linguistic experiments. Those experiments can be very diverse. In linguistics, they, for example, might be used to see how the brain interacts with and processes languages, and in philosophy, ideal languages are invented as a perfect alternative to natural ones. Constructed languages often receive quite a bit of criticism, from the way they were designed to their lack of practicality. But I'm not here to do that. Instead, let's take a look at one language out of each category and begin with Laodon. It was invented by Susan Hayden Algin in 1982 when she used it in her series of novels called Native Tongue. The plot revolves around a group of women who have to create a new secret language, and this language, Laodon, would be created by women, for women, and would mirror the way English uses man at default. What I mean is, for example, in English the word man means both man and people. In Laodon, the word with means both women and people. And I'm in between of calling it a more inclusive language or a feminist language or a more matriarchal language. And it really makes me think about the importance of gender neutrality and how gender in language affects the attitudes towards gender norms and roles within a culture. But then there's nothing wrong with gender as much as with the way we are forced into it. But I guess it's a topic for a whole other episode. Or show. Or a dissertation. Anyways, it wasn't designed just for the book. Algin wanted to test the idea that most European languages are better fitted for man's expression. So the aim of her language and the whole decade-long experiment was to try and see what would be different if our languages were tailored more towards the expression of women. And for Algin, including Laudon into her series of books was an attempt to popularize not only the language, but also the idea that maybe we could create a completely new language with the same target, or at the very least see what we can do with the towns we already have. So from an artistic language, it turned into an engineered one, or vice versa. Or was it both from the very start? 
Grammar-wise, it literally mirrors English. If you want to say, I like potatoes in Lodon, you would have to flip it and reverse it and say, like I potatoes. Mm, well, this is where I guess the best part of language comes into play, because its vocabulary and sentence structure have to be very explicit about what you mean. The beginning of the sentence marks its purpose. If we have a, and please forgive my pronunciation, B-I-I at the front, it is just a statement. I like potatoes, not a big deal. If it starts with a B, B-E-E, it's a warning, like I like potatoes, so you better get out of here. And if there is a B, B-E, it indicates a promise. Potatoes, I know we had it rough, but I will never stop loving you. There is also a ba, B-A-A, for a question, a bo, B-O, for a command, and a bo, B-O-O, for a request. Not only that, but also the nature of facts is ingrained into the ending of statements. If the sentence ends with a V, W-I, it is true because it's self-evident. With a wa, W-A-A, it comes from a trusted source. With a wa, it comes from a distrusted source. And so on. The best of which are probably we, W-E, meaning that it came in a dream, and wo, W-O-O, that is used to say, I don't know. By the by, this whole thing of using short words or adding letters to words to state the source in linguistics called evidentiality. And it does exist in natural tongues. It is very much prevalent in the languages native to North and South America, the Caucasus and Tibet. European languages don't really have that, apart from maybe Estonian. What we use in English to communicate the same thing are words like must have, must be, they say, or it seems. Same idea different execution. So, all in all, my version of I like potatoes would sound something like me, je, le, udemedawi. Yes, I saw it in a dream. How else can you discover such an intimate detail of your personality? As you noticed, this grammar creates quite a bit of unique vocabulary already, but it doesn't stop there. Laudan, being a language designed to make communication more precise, is full of words that describe the very nuances of different emotions. For example, there are five words for compassion, with mona meaning compassion for foolish reasons, and mihana meaning compassion despite the bad things. There are as many words for frustration, with dama being one of them, meaning frustration with the reason, without someone to blame, which is fertile. How about 13 words for love, with ad meaning love for one respected but not liked, or ab meaning love for one liked but not respected. Laudon itself is translated as perception language. And with the same goal of well-defined expression, there are affixes, a couple of letters that we usually mix in to change the part of speech and turn paint into painting or painter. In Laudon, they are used to communicate what is usually shown with intonation or body language. For instance, there is this little fella, do we, d, u, u, that is added to verbs and means to try in vain with no result. Or, to show a distrust or dislike, you can put an LH at the beginning and or middle of a noun, before finally listening to the way Laudan sounds, just a bit of phonetics. There are five vowels and only 13 consonants, most of which are okay. 
Besides that, there are two tones, which is basically a substitute for long vowels. There is a low rising tone uh, and a high falling one. Uh, Combine all of the above and we get something like this. That was a story about a magic granny being happy for no specific reason, written by none other but Suzette Hayden Elgin herself. There isn't much data about who, why and where speaks Laudon. From what I've gathered, there is definitely a dedicated community of enthusiasts who use it, translate onto it, add in new words and generally spread the word and keep it alive. All that despite Elgin herself labeling the experiment unsuccessful as it struggled to gain much popularity. Unlike this one other language that was also invented in the 20th century. Once upon a time, about a century ago, there was this linguist and professor of English language and literature, John Ronald Ray Tolkien, who just loved languages from the early age, to the point that in his spare time he would create some of his own, with no clear concept or potential speakers in mind, but a lot of inspiration from English, Welsh, Finnish and Greek, he would develop about 15 languages. And they weren't all random and separate as well. He created a whole branch of interconnected tones, and within this branch you could see such progressions and transformations that is supposed to happen with natural languages over centuries. But more than that, to give a time and a space and a context to those languages, he would create one of the most popular fictional series in the world that includes The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings and The Silmarillion. Even though Tolkien was very prolific with his conlangs, what really took off and gained a bit of a following out of the whole family was Alvish, more specifically Quenya and Sindarin, which relationship is similar to the one Latin and French have. Quenya is an Asian version of and a foundation for colloquial spoken Sindarin. I mean, to call Sindarin spoken is kind of weird, because Tolkien never intended for any of his languages to actually be used, and he definitely could not foresee the eagerness his fans would later have for learning them. Neither Quenya nor Sindarin could be used for a casual conversation, since grammar rules are incomplete and they are only dictionaries gathered by fans that account for only about 25,000 words. But worse than that, there are very few texts in Elvish and no proficient speaker. In other words, no source to form and mimic your speech after. Nonetheless, let's take a look at what we do know about Sindarin. Its grammar might be incomplete, but even as such it is extremely detailed. So detailed and full of exceptions, it would be easy to mistake it for a natural language. Like Welsh, that Tolkien modeled Sindarin after. What really is quite unusual about both those languages is word mutation. <gasps> this just means that in order to change, say, a singular noun, queen, to a plural noun, queens, a whole letter changes either the beginning or middle of the word. Like in Sindarin, word for queen is bereth, B-E-R-E-T-H, in plural, 
changes to berith, B-E-R-I-T-H. This kind of grammar requires a lot of rules, which is not very alluring to me, personally. Maybe next time. But many fans find it extremely rewarding to study, even if the number of things they can say is limited. Speaking of speaking, what kind of phonetics does this grammar entail? For Sindarin's sound, Tolkien took a cocktail shaker, poured in Welsh, Icelandic, Old Norse and Old English, mixed them all together and got... For consonants, some of which are more common than others, and for vowels. Again, Tolkien wasn't that concerned with who would use this language and was mostly creating a stunning piece of art. You can't touch this. But his love for aesthetics shows up even more in the way Sindarin is written. The script, that is called Tengwa, looks like Celts writing with a lot more curves and roundings. You most likely seen it before, but just in case, I've left a link for you in the description to take a look one more time. When it comes to vocabulary, there isn't much to say. Quite literally. Because, as I mentioned before, there are just about 25,000 words, which is a lot, yes, but unfortunately not enough for practical use. And since Elvish was designed for, you know, elves, it's not very suitable for human casual conversation and definitely lacks vocabulary to say Will you pretend to be my wife for an insurance scam, but then we fall in love for real? With it being one of the most popular artistic languages, I was convinced that there ought to be some kind of council that would keep on developing the language. But officially, it all started and finished with Tolkien. I say officially because there are people that keep the legacy of his languages going by using them in their stories and fanfics, but most of the new words and grammar they come up with are locked within those stories. Now to the way it sounds. If you are a fan of the series, you've heard it all before. But this is what a Sindarin poem about meeting a lady of one's dream in a forest sound like. And this, by the way, is the sound of Quenya, the old Latin-like version. Si 
na Marie, na Hiruvalje Valimar, na Elje Hiruva, na Marie. It was Tolkien himself reading Son of the Elves Beyond the Sea, which is all about saying farewell to people and places. Just as with Laodon, there is not much information on how many people speak any kind of Elvish. And unlike Star Trek's Klingon that has one whole native speaker, there are none reported for Elvish. But needless to say, it is the one artificial language most people heard of, even if they are not quite sure what artificial languages are. Okay, by now we have one language for philosophy and one for art. It is time for some international communication with the language of hope, the hoping language, Esperanto. Until a couple of months ago, I thought that it was just a fad, some kind of new invention that I, at 24, is just too old to understand. Boy, was I surprised when I found out that Esperanto was invented in 1887 and now is one of the most not just popular, but actually used constructed languages. It is indeed very appealing, not only with its 16 grammar rules, but also with its message. The guy who invented it, a Polish ophthalmologist who spoke seven languages, Dr. Ludwig Zamenhof, looked at the wars and conflicts around, thought, Enough is enough. And decided that it could all be eliminated if we just finally learn to speak and understand each other in one culturally neutral language. Mind you, it was long before English would spread as much as it did. With that goal in mind, Zamenhof set to create a language so easy anyone could learn it. Wanna try and do it now? Esperanto's grammar is very concise, with no exception to the rules. All words are built out of tiny bricks, prefixes, roots and affixes. Those have a determined meaning, and the role of a word in a sentence is shown by final letters. Add an O at the end and you get a noun. Yeah, you do also have to add it to your name. Add an A and you get an adjective. Add an E and you get an adverb. The tense of the verb is also shown by final letters. And forget about the irregular verb nightmare that English has. So, for example, take the root lewd, add an O at the end, and you get ludo, that means a game. Add emma and you get ludema, playful. Add an os, and you get ludos, meaning will play, and is, and get ludis, meaning played. Here you go, now you know Esperanto. Well, almost. You just gotta learn all those 3000 roots and the meaning of all those prefixes and affixes. Which also would be pretty easy since they are phonemic, pronounced and spelled in the same way. And since Esperanto is basically a remix of Romance languages, like Italian and French, if you speak any one language from that group, you already know a big chunk of Esperanto's vocabulary. There are also some words and grammar taken from Germanic and Slavic languages. So if you're familiar with those as well, Esperanto will be a child's play to you. Just like Zamenhof intended. But on the flip side, if your language is outside of those groups of languages, then it would be easier to study than many others, but it will still present you with some challenges. Like with pronunciation. If you speak any of the languages from groups mentioned above, you will not be shocked by such vowels as A, E, I, Yo, O, U and no less familiar consonants Bo, Cho, Do, Fo, Go, Jo, Ho Jo, ko, lo, mo, no, po, ro, so, sho, to, vo, zo. Okay, maybe you will be a little bit ruffled by this unusual to English guy. Zo. 
altogether, Esperanto sounds something like this. Ne esprimo vian amon. Amo estas nederebla. Laventeto dolce spiras. In silento nevidebla. Mian amon ne esprimis. Cion el coro diris. Shi malvarma kai tremanta. Kuntimego tui foriris. Baldau post foriro shia voyajanto tien venis. Nevidebla kai silenta. Perek gem li shin for prenis. This was a William Blake's poem, Love Secret, about love not needing big words and proclamations. I promise not to criticize any language, but what I will say about Esperanto is that most of my research about it came up in Esperanto. I guess that's how they get you to study it. And I have to admit, the supporters of the language are doing a pretty good job, because apparently there are 2 million people all over the world who speak Esperanto, and even if not many, there are native speakers. More than that, you can pass an international exam. There are annual conferences and councils that add in new words, speaking clubs, films, music, books. You can even study it in Duolingo, for God's sakes. Not an ad. Some people do it for a noble goal of cross-cultural and more or less unbiased communication. Some do it because it's like a gateway language into other European languages that gives you a quick detour and helps to get acquainted with the gist of European languages. Admittedly, it is not perfect. In fact, there were attempts to improve Esperanto that resulted in two separate versions, Noviel and Ido. But it still managed to survive through the reign of Nazi Germany and Stalin in the USSR. Yes, because of Esperanto were persecuted in both. And now, more than a century later, it is still here. Even if it didn't have the international reach its inventor was aspiring for, it is still very impressive for a constructed language. And if now you feel inspired to create your language, here's what you will need. First, decide who would use this language and why. Would it be humans living in a forest? Aliens living in the ocean? Cats being half dead, half alive in the boxes? Would you like it to be spoken? Then what would it sound like? Do you want to add some signs? Or clicks? Or whistles? Will it be a stress? Or a tone language? Settle on this, then think about the consonants and vowels that would make the language flow in the way you want. And you don't have to model it after your native language. You don't have to model it after anything. Play around, discover what sounds are there in the world, create your own. Then, get yourself some grammar rules for plurals, cases, gender, and tenses. You can have no gender, five genders, no cases, ten cases, one tense, twenty tenses. You can run as far as your imagination takes you. Think of adjectives that describe things and adverbs that describe actions, articles, pronouns and prepositions that tie it all together. Where is their place in a sentence? How are sentences and questions formed? In order to pass the torch for the future generations, we need to literally spell it out and come up with a writing system. Would you like it to be a Latin-like alphabet? Symbols? Letters so complex and beautiful it would take an hour to write the supers in the fridge? And finally, in order to have something to pass to the generations to come, create a vocabulary. This part might take a lifetime, but hey, no rush. If you'd like to learn more about any of the languages mentioned in this episode, there are some links in the description waiting for you.
if you got so inspired you created a new language for a widely popular fictional series and now would like to support the podcast, you can do it by saying Risha on Patreon, it means hello and lard on, or by covering your full body tattoo in Elvish with some merch, or with donations and a note in Esperanto so complex I'd have to learn the language to understand it. Thanks to my friend Lerner for opening up a whole world of artificial languages for me by introducing Esperanto. And thanks again to my friend Maxim for his support and guidance through the jungles of grammar. And of course, thank you for listening. Next week, get ready to accidentally fall in love with Estonian. Happy holidays!